Thanks for tuning in to this Journey Bible Church sermon podcast. Join us every week for fresh sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you like to listen most. If you are looking for a church in the Kansas City metro, come check out one of our church's campuses for worship on Sundays. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. morning. My name's uh, Mike Bickley, and I, I serve as a lead pastor at Journey Bible Church. So if you're a guest here uh, this morning, welcome. We are grateful you're with us, whether you're watching online or, or you're in person. And our mission as a church is together, we are going to journey to passionately follow Jesus. And we really believe that that's the essence of what we're called to do, is to do it together but to passionately follow Jesus. And we believe our Sunday morning gathering here in person is at the center of that, that we need this not only to fulfill the biblical commands of the community uh, gathering each week, but also for the encouragement and the inspiration that it brings to our lives, the, the opening of God's word, the singing um, of songs, praying together. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ephesians. We're in our first, fifth week of the first chapter. We're going to finish chapter one today. So I'm sure some of you will say an amen to that. It took you forever, Pastor Mike, uh, to get through chapter one. But um, we, we've been studying the book of Ephesians. And, and the book of Ephesians is written by the Apostle Paul to a church that's in Ephesus. Ephesus is a port city on the western um, edge of Asia and on the Aegean Sea. And so um, in the first century, Ephesus was a, a very highly important commercial city. Um, the One of the seven wonders of the world was in Ephesus. And um, it was kind of a, a place where many came and, and many departed. And so um, you could kind of think of like today, uh, if you were to think of some of the bigger cities, uh, you might think of Chicago in the north. Um, part of the central uh, of the United States. That's kind of like what Ephesus was for the Roman Empire. And as we've been studying uh, the book uh, of Ephesians, the letter written to the church at Ephesus, it's all about the church, but it kind of breaks into two parts. It, part one is the first three chapters, and it's all about our position in Christ. It's, it's about what we believe. It's telling us who we are in Christ, what is our identity. And then the second half of the book, chapters four through six, is all about the way that we practice our identity. It's not about beliefs as much as it is about behaviors. It's not as much about the identity as it is about the lifestyle that we are supposed to live. And so the first half gives us the foundation in gospel truth, and the second half tells us how we can bear fruit by living out the gospel. Now, chapter one, we've said is really, um, this is just a kind of a summary outline, is really about the realities that come according to God's work of salvation. 
So after introducing the book, we looked at this idea that we have been given spiritual blessings. And then what happens is Paul unpacks three of those for us uh, in a Trinitarian formula. He tells us how God the Father was involved in choosing us and adopting us, that we're now sons and daughters, um, and we, we have um, been chosen by him. And then he talked about how God the Son has redeemed us how he has delivered us and rescued us from sin and death. And as a result of that, we, we have um, been changed from the old person we were to the noon person. And then the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in sealing us. Um, we've been told uh, last week, we, we looked at how the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is God's down payment that he's going to complete and finish the work that he started. So, This morning, we want to look at Paul's prayer, which is in the second half of the chapter. Verses uh, 3 through 14 are one sentence in the original language, and verses 15 through 23 are one sentence in the original language, which makes Paul a run-on writer. Um, He would not do well uh, in grammar classes, um, but part of that is because he's stacking these understandings upon one another. And we're going to even see some of that this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. I'm going to read 15 through 23 in the English Standard Version. And we're kind of, our theme is, okay, we have spiritual blessings. We know we have been adopted. We know we've been redeemed. We know we've been sealed. Now Paul prays for us to understand and have insight into those realities. And that's what we're going to explore this morning. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, this prayer that Paul has, I'm going to break it into three parts as we walk through it this morning. One, we'll look at Paul's remembering. He's taking time to pause and give thanks to God for the work that God has done in the lives of the Ephesian believers. And then secondly, he requests on their behalf that they would have divine illumination about these blessings that they've been given. And then that springboards, when he gets to the section on power, into asking, uh, or not really asking, declaring, realizing God's great power and, and what it is about that that should be moving us 
um, in our lives. So these three things, remembering, requesting, and realizing. You know, pastors, preachers like to have their alliterations and their way of helping you remember things. So there you go, three of them. So let's look at the first one. And like any time you study the Bible, one of the, the things that you're always looking for is you're, you're taking something that is true there and you're seeking to put it into practice for your own life. You're looking for the timeless principles. So we want to model our prayer lives and imitate Paul's prayer life. And so Paul is remembering and giving thanks for God's gracious work. And that's something we should do. We should stop and Give thanks for God's gracious work in our lives. So let's look at verses 15 and 16. Paul says, for this reason, and then I want you to notice that's connected, for this reason is actually connected to, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And he says that, that the reason he is going to give thanks and remember, see if I can do this, is because, one, of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and then, two, your love toward all the saints. So he brings up their faith and their love. And we know in the Bible, what are the, what's the great triad? Anybody know what the third one missing here is? Hope, right? So he brings up this idea of faith. And you'll, if you go back to verse 13, there is that section where it says they heard the gospel and they believed. And so they put their trust in Christ and the work that he had done on the cross. And, and Paul, notice the object of their faith. It's the Lord Jesus. I, I think this is kind of important for us to just stop and pause for a second. Many of us, when we come to faith, we're looking for someone to rescue us. We're looking for someone to forgive us. We're looking for someone who has the power and authority to wash us, to cleanse us, to take away our guilt, to take away our shame. We're looking for someone who can make us new. We want to be saved. We want to be delivered. We want to be forgiven. We want to be in a right relationship with God. But when we take Jesus as Savior... We also take him as Lord. So you can't part out Jesus. You can't say, well, I want a Jesus, big A, and I'll take B Lord later. I just want a Jesus, the Savior now, and all the benefits of salvation, and maybe later in my life, I'll get to lordship. That's not the way Jesus works. When we have Jesus, Jesus, we have all of Jesus. To whatever degree we understand that he was Lord, he's still Lord Jesus whether we fully grasp it or not. And so what Paul is noting here is for whatever reason or however they came to faith, coming from all the pagan backgrounds the Ephesians did, they understood that when they took Jesus as Savior, they were also taking him as Lord. He was Lord Jesus. And so as they submitted and surrendered to him to do a work of salvation, they are continuing to submit and surrender to him as Lord over their life, as master of the universe. And so our awareness and obedience to him as Lord should always be growing. But just to make it very plain, he's always been Lord and he always will be Lord. Whether we surrender and submit to it fully like we should. And then second is the love toward all the saints. 
This is one of the hallmark attributes Jesus described uh, about his church is that we would love one another as he has loved us. And that that would be the thing that would really tear down the barriers, the prejudices, the divisions that we have in society. So when you become a part of Christ's community, love is the basis upon which we gel together unconditional love for one another. See, love isn't an emotion. Love is a selfless sacrifice out of devotion to be poured out on someone else. So when we love someone, we're being selfless, we're being sacrificial, we're being devoted to doing what would be good for them. And that's what, that's what love is. And that's what, that's what allows God's people to look different than the world. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I watched a little of the news this week. I would not call it a love fest. There are a lot of things I would call it, but it wasn't a love fest. It wasn't everyone trying to love and accept and figure out how to get along with one another. It, it, it wasn't giving grace and mercy. And see, that's what the church is supposed to be. We're supposed to have love toward all the saints. Our love for one another is the flagship advertisement to the world that we belong to Christ. Now, Paul's giving thanks. Paul's remembering God's gracious work among this church. But he doesn't stop there. And so this kind of leads me to an application here at the beginning, which is really an inference to what follows. Because Paul's now going to pray for them. He's going to pray that they would be enlightened and have a deeper knowledge. I, I don't know if I want to use the word deeper knowledge as much as to have insight into the blessings they've already been given. And so as much as you and I should be thankful at this time of year for the things that God has done, we also should have a desire for God to do more in the future. So I should... I should be content with what God is doing, but I shouldn't be complacent. Do you understand the difference? That it's okay to be grateful, to be thankful, to rejoice, to be content, and yet it is also spiritual to desire to see God do more. So I want you to write down a name of somebody you know who's under construction with God. Right? I want you to just pick one person. Somebody you know, God's at work in their life, and, and they're under construction, and maybe, maybe they need to move forward. Maybe they need to leave something behind. I'll let you decide, but I want you to pick that person, and, and I want you to make a commitment to pray for them for the next seven days, till next Sunday. I want you to pray today and just for seven days. Just, I want you to pray for somebody for seven days. And what we're gonna pray is what Paul prayed. We're gonna unpack that here in a minute. So you don't even have to know what to pray for them. Other, I'm gonna tell you, it's in the verses that follow. But I want you to do that. Think about what happens when we pray. There are people in this church that, that tell me, uh, a few of them say, you know, Mike, I pray for you every day. I can't tell you what that does for my heart to know that I'm being held before the throne of God by people. Think about 
the person you're about to pray for? How much would it mean to them to know that you prayed for them every day? We're teaching about Paul's prayer, but let's not forget in the simplest form, we should model ourselves after Paul's prayer and we should pray. So that leads us to what would you ask for? What should you ask for the person you're praying for? If they're a believer in Christ, what are some things that you could ask for them? And I would say in the big picture, you want to ask for them to experience divine illumination. In verses 17 through 19, Paul uses several phases, phrases to describe this idea of the spirit of the living God illuminating God's truth in a person's life. So illumination is different than inspiration. Inspiration is when God gives the word to authors who write it down for us. Illumination is when the Holy Spirit enlightens the eyes of our heart so that we understand the word and its truth and how it's to be applied in our lives. So look at these verses. It says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. So I, just, I want you to know that all these phrases, what he's looking for is for us to grow in our knowledge. All right, now, I, I need to take a little aside here because when we see the word knowledge in the English, we think of content, we think of information. We may think of data or things like that. We think of lists. We think of intellectual understanding. It, here, the word knowledge means more than that. And I want you to see the words that he uses to describe knowledge. He uses the word wisdom. He uses the word revelation. Something divinely disclosed. He's, he talks about having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Notice that he says that the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. These are the things that are behind his understanding of knowledge. So the scope of knowledge here is way more than an intellectual ascent to things that might be true. It's experiential. It, it's wisdom. It's, it's divine revelation, disclosure, and illumination. It's having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That means opened up to where they can really see reality. Your heart in the Bible is the command center for your mind and your soul. That's, it's, a, it's a metaphor. So when he says the eyes of your heart, what he's trying to say is that your command center would be running God's operating system and that you would be able to grasp what is really true. And so this is what he's praying for them. And this is what you could pray for that one person you wrote down. And I don't want you to forget, and I'm going to see if I can use a different color here maybe to do it, is that what we are doing with him in searching for this knowledge is relational. It is in the knowledge of Christ. It's not a knowledge apart from Christ. It's not a knowledge that we acquire by more effort. It's knowledge that's acquired from a relationship where the Holy Spirit 
is unveiling for us wisdom and revelation and the eyes of our heart are being opened up and enlightened to see the realities. This is what we are praying for, is that we would grasp what is already ours in Christ. Now, now he's going to give us, he's going to give us three things that he wants us to really grasp. And here they are. Number one, the hope to which he has called you. Number two, the riches of his inglorious inheritance in the saints. And three, the greatness of his power. So these three things, what he wants for you to be enlightened about, he wants you to be enlightened about the hope to which he has called you. At the center of our understanding um, of our future with God and our past with God, as well as our present, is hope. This idea of a preferable future. Because let's just face it, sometimes life is not good. I could put it in another phrase, but I don't think pastors are supposed to say that. And so, you know, we, we live in, in a world that's fallen. We live in a world that's broken. We live in a world that's lost. We live in a world that's infested by sin. We, we live in a world that endorses unrighteousness and practices injustice. We live in a world in which we long for the things we're called to to be fully expressed. You know, what are some of the things in the Bible that you are called to? Now, I know if I ask a question and you give the wrong answer and I point it out, nobody else will answer again. So I, I get that. So let me give you one. The hope of your calling, one of the things that we're called to in the Bible is holiness. Another thing we're called to in the Bible is freedom. What are some of the things that are a part of your calling? I'm not going to wait too long. I'll just give you some more. What? To serve others? Yes. So we, actually, I, I'll put that even, take that a step back. We're actually called to be a part of the body where we will serve one another. Okay? Fatherhood. Okay? Part of, part of your calling. It says we're called out of darkness into. So we're called into the light. We're called into God's eternal glory. We're called into his kingdom forever and ever. We're called into his glorious presence forever and ever. If you want to do a fun study, put in the word called and, and see what pops up and then work yourself through it. Did you know you're called to holiness? The reason you're called to be holy is because he is holy. And so all of these things are a part of our calling, but sometimes we don't know what is promised in our calling. What is coming because of our calling? And so he's praying, will you open up their eyes to see the hope to which he is called? And then second, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, I want you to notice here, we want to change that. We want to say the riches of our glorious inheritance. Tell me what I get as an heir of the kingdom. And we have, to, we have to be a little bit, we have to slow down sometimes. We have to understand that our inheritance is because of his inheritance. Who is God's inheritance? Say we are. Say it again. We are. Say it louder. We are. 
Okay. In the Bible, we are God's own possession. We are a people taken for his glory. And so we are his inheritance. That means you're adopted. That means you're a son. That means you're a daughter. You know what that means? You're an heir of the kingdom. So because he's taken you as his inheritance, guess what you get? Everything the father has to offer. And yet we don't understand the riches of what that means. We don't understand what it will mean to be in his glorious presence forever. You know, when I read in the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, I'm told that a day is coming when we are going to be standing before the lamb on his throne. A day when he's going to be honored and glorified and worshiped. Yeah, we're going to be there with a multitude of myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands. We're going to be there with the angelic beings. We're going to be there with all of the redeemed saints from all time. And we're going to be in a place where there is no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more sin, no more death, no more evil. Can I have an amen? amen. And alongside of that, it's going to be one joyous party for all eternity. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then third, what's the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? I mean, how many different ways can you say, okay, he's mighty, he's powerful. I remember the movie, Mr. Mom. How many of you have ever seen Mr. Mom, okay? He's doing a home remodeling project and he's getting someone to give him a bed and they ask him what kind of power he wants and throws something out and he says, well, 220, 221, whatever it takes, you know, and, and he just, he doesn't really know what he's talking about, but he knows he needs power. Some of us don't know everything there is to know about God's power, but we know we need great power. We know we are living in a state of existence where we need more than we can muster. We need more than what we can do in our human abilities. We need God's great power. So Paul prays that this church would grasp the immeasurable greatness of the power that's given to those of us who believe. This hope these riches, this power, they're given to you and I in Christ. Do we grasp it? Are we enlightened? Are we experiencing those three things? The hope of his calling, the riches of the glorious inheritance, the greatness of the power. William Randall Randolph Hearst was a, a media mogul, print and newspapers and things like that. And for seven decades, he amassed um, a diverse collection of paintings and drawings, sculptures and ta tapestries and, or tapestries in every different conceivable form of art. It is said that at one point, his collection was so vast that one quarter of the world's artwork was in his possession. And he was reading uh, about a very extremely rare and valuable piece of art. And as he read about it, he, he set his mind on it, so to speak. He was like, I've got to have that piece of art. 
And, and the article that he was reading said that nobody knew where this artwork was or who had it or, or how priceless it really was. And so William Randolph Hearst called his agent and he says, I want this piece of art. I want you to do whatever it takes to find it. I want you to spend whatever it takes to secure it. And I want it to be in my possession in my art gallery. So the agent took off. And for months and months and months, he looked for this piece of art. He researched. He tracked down every lead. And finally, he found the piece of artwork. And he came back to William Randolph Hearst. And he said, he said Mr. Hearst, I have found the artwork. And he goes, how much did it cost? And he goes, well, you already own it. It's stored in one of your warehouses. How many of us are like that, though? I mean, really. We're looking for more of Jesus. We're looking for more of the Spirit. We're looking for more of God. We're looking for a second experience. We're looking for a special experience something or other to happen when we already have all of Jesus, all of the spirit and all of God. We have all the riches of his glorious inheritance. We have all of his power. All of these things have already been given to us. And maybe we just haven't tapped into that power yet. And so what I want to encourage you to do is to realize that knowing is more than information. So many of us think that if we get into another stu study and we learn a deeper truth, we're going to do better. I'm here to tell you that after Paul tells you in 3 through 14, all of these great spiritual blessings, he then spends almost an equal amount of time praying for those to be experienced in the lives of those who already have it, to understand it in the context of a relationship with Christ. And so that's what I want to encourage you with, is that knowing is more than information. And some of the things that you're searching for in your life aren't going to be secured by searching harder. They're going to be secured through prayer and divine illumination of what is already yours. We remember God's work. We request God's illumination. And we should consider God's great power. Now, what I love about verses 20 through 23 is Paul has started to talk about power. And then he's like, okay, I'm on the issue of power. Let me tell you about power. And now what he's going to do is he kind of takes a discourse, a declaration, a, a, a kind of like a, I mean, I don't know what to call it. He just like goes off on power because he wants those he's praying for to grasp and consider and to realize the power that is theirs in Christ. And Paul goes over four things. I want you to see these. He says the power that he worked in Christ. So this power was worked by God the Father in Christ. One, when he raised him from the dead. This is beautiful. I, I, I don't know if you guys have ever thought about this, but death is coming for everybody. You can try to postpone it. You can try to escape. But it's coming for you. Monday, I, I met with a, a man named Chuck who uh, used to attend um, Journey Bible Church when it was a late the Bible Church, moved away, and then he recently uh, started coming back to services here. And um, Chuck was diagnosed with cancer, 
and then the diagnosis became terminal. And about five weeks or six weeks ago, he, he stopped taking his chemotherapy and um, had maybe six months to live. And his goal was to live to Christmas. And so I was meeting with him Monday, and he had taken a hard turn. And on Wednesday, he died. Death is a bitter, relentless enemy. And not only are you and I going to die, we're going to decay, we're going to decompose. And you can spend millions of dollars like some of these rich people are, thinking they're going to store their body away for later, and it's going to be, you know, when they figure out the, the secret to eternal life, it, it, they're going to, their bodies are going to come back to life. We already know the secret. His name is Jesus. And he was raised from the dead. The Bible tells us Jesus did not undergo corruption. He did not undergo decay. Jesus wasn't restored to life. Jesus transcended death. I want you to understand that. He came back in a new body. Who's going to get one like that? Say, I will. And so you and I, Know this power is a power that's beyond anything we can fathom because we can do everything we want to try to stay youth, youthful and everything we want to avoid death. But we have a God whose power transcends death. Second, I, I'm excited about these truths. Second, he seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places. You know, seated at the right hand is a place of honor and authority. And it says here that the seating, the enthronement, if the first one is the victory of Christ, the second one is the enthronement of Christ. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in, all, in the age to come. Can you pile anything more on there to let us know that he is over all? The angelic beings... The humans that are ruling, who think their name named is a big deal. I mean, let, let's face it. You know, you say Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City, it's a big deal. That name is nothing compared to the name above every name that is named. And so he has seated him in the place of enthroned power over every sphere with absolute supreme authority. And then third, he has put all things under his feet. You know, when I walked on my yard yesterday, I, 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 I'm walking over my yard. My yard is under my feet. I own that yard. That yard is mine. I've conquered that yard. It's weedless. It's green. It's got trees in it, most of them not dying. In the Bible, this idea of something under your feet means that you've conquered it, that it's yours. Notice that all things are under his feet, all things. There is no sphere, there is no authority. He's enthroned and he's conquering and eventually will conquer all things. It is so certain that Jesus is going to reign for all eternity, that he is said to already have all things under his feet. And then fourth, which is beautiful, 
is he is given Christ as head over all things in the universe to the church. He's the head of the church. The head of the universe is the head of the church. We are his body. We are his family. And he fills all in all. These are beautiful declarations of reality, of what is really true. The power that raised Christ has overcome death and raised him victorious over sin. This power has enthroned Christ as king over all with no rivals to his authority. This power has established Christ's rule over all things angelic, demonic, human, or spiritual, all things under his feet. He has conquered over all, never to be conquered, and he's been installed as the head over the church. So, church, that power is your power. Doesn't feel that way sometimes, but that's why Paul's praying for us. Because that power that he just talked about, that power that did those four things is the same power that is accessible to you as a follower of Jesus. That power is what God wants to unleash in your life. He wants to give you divine illumination about your spiritual blessings. He wants to unfold them for you so that you can experience him. And out of that experience and relationship with Jesus, you can live in light of what is really true, your identity in Christ. And that you can tap into that power and live differently. So to close us, I'd like to pray through this passage for our church. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for all the ways you've worked at Journey Bible Church. You're amazing. Thank you for reaching us with the gospel. Thank you for choosing us, redeeming us, and sealing us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we cherish the grace and the mercy and the love that you have poured out on us. And now we ask that you would give us insight and illumination into the Holy Spirit's work in us. Help us to seek your wisdom. God, pour out your revelation of truth to the eyes of our heart so that we will deepen our dependence upon you and our relationship with you. God, give us knowledge, not just more information, but a more profound experience of trusting you day to day. Enlighten the eyes of our heart so that we will grasp the hope to which you've called us that we would rest in the promises you've already made, that we would grasp the riches of your glorious inheritance, that we would live in light of our certain future dwelling with you as the people of your own possession in eternity with you forever and ever. God, help us to grasp the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us. Lord, we just confess we really are feeble. We really are humanistic. We just try harder and harder and we submit and surrender less and less. God, forgive us. We want the working of your great might, the working that you showed when you raised Christ from the dead, the power that seated him at your right hand. God, the power that has given him all rule and authority and dominion, the power that exalts his name above every name, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And Father, we know that you have put all things under his feet. You've given him as head over our church. And so, Lord, we ask 
that that would be more than an ascent of truth. It would be a lifestyle that we live. We long to live out your truth rather than the world's lies or the devil's deceptions. We long to live out of your power rather than our weakness. We long to live in light of your hope and our calling rather than out of our problems and circumstances and disappointments. Lord, unlock these incredible spiritual blessings so that in Christ, when we surrender afresh, we will experience him afresh. We pray because of Christ and for the glory of Christ. Amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We'd appreciate a positive rating and would encourage you to share this program with a friend. Thank you for listening.